Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm speaking with Ian McGregor about his history of the most famous hotspot of the Cold War, entitled Checkpoint Charlie, the Cold War, the Berlin Wall, and the most dangerous place on Earth. Ian, welcome to New Books Network. Hi, thank you for having me. Well, thank you for agreeing to be on our show. I was wondering if you you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Well, uh, I uh, I live in London. I've been a uh, publisher uh, in the UK publishing trade for nearly 30 years. I've always worked in editorial. My degree uh, was in uh, modern European history. So I've always worked in uh, nonfiction. Uh, and my specialty that I've developed over the last uh, 17, 18 years or so of actually commissioning titles. So obviously you work your way up from being a desk editor to a commissioning editor to then a publisher, which is what I am now. Uh, I've predominantly uh, published history books. Uh, I've published everything from uh, ancient Roman history to uh, the Vikings to uh, uh, Napoleonic to even American Civil War, which I've published uh, books on several battles in the American Civil War, obviously Gettysburg, Chancellorsville, that kind of thing. Uh, But I specialize mainly, and what I I like to work on is oral history, uh, because that to me is the most important type of history you can uh, publish, because then you're getting it from the actual source, you're getting it from the well, so to speak. Uh, So I've published many books in oral history that have been bestsellers where obviously I've published books that are relevant to the Great War, uh, the Second World War, uh, the Vietnam War, etc. So that's what led me to uh, deciding, it's a a natural progression, that's what led me to deciding if, if I if I could write at all, I didn't want to go into fiction. Uh, I'd be completely useless. Uh, I wanted to go into nonfiction. And obviously, if I was going to do nonfiction, I wanted to write a history book. And I was thinking that uh, when you were just mentioning about how the, the value you accord to oral history, how that really shows through in your book, is that it, yours is not just a straightforward 
the wall went up on this date, and on this date these people cross. You, you you know capture their stories, and I thought it was especially fascinating how you capture stories of people whose uh, lives were intertwined with the history of the wall throughout its history. And I thought that was especially fascinating. Well, that that was the uh, the core idea I had. I mean, basically, a lot of the, the work I do as a publisher is I'll obviously buy books from literary agents and get into what is euphemistically called a, an auction for a book with other publishers. But also, I'm, I'm known in the book trade for coming up with my own ideas, especially in history books, uh, for things that I would like to read and that aren't in the bookshops yet. So, And I'll go out and source my own author and I'll develop the project. So The Berlin Wall was one of those such projects. I, I Because I have a love for it anyway and I have a... Uh, fascination with uh, Eastern European history after the Second World War. Uh, as a segue, I was very lucky when I was a teenager, my parents sent me on a, or paid to send me on a, a student exchange to Leningrad in 1981. Uh, so I was, it was amazing to see uh, what Soviet Russia was like then. And that, that, that always uh, kind of uh, imbued me with an enthusiasm for East European history. My uh, degree, my dissertation to end my degree uh, was on the Prague Spring of 1968. So with this, I was thinking, I knew that the anniversary was coming up to the 30th anniversary in 2019. Uh, and this is all of three years ago. And I started thinking, I want to publish a book on the Berlin Wall, but I want to do it, as I just said, through uh, the prism of oral history. So I just started talking to people and I did some investigation about who would be available to talk to. And within a few months, the more I started talking to people and the more exciting it became because you listen to their their amazing an anecdotes of their service or their experiences if they were civilians. I just got the bug and I just thought I've, I've recorded at least a dozen interviews here and it's, it's just incredible. Uh, just to donate these to an archive would be incredible. And I thought... I want to do it justice, so I want to write it. So I was wondering if you could perhaps start us off by talking a bit about the the context. We we, we talk we hear a lot about the Berlin Wall. We see the, mm. the the images of it of it both going up and coming down are very iconic. Could you perhaps explain why there was a wall and what it you know what its purpose was or what, what the intention was and and why was it viewed by the people who constructed it as as necessary at that time? Sure. Well, fundamentally, it was a wall to keep people in, not to keep people out. Uh, so the, the potted history is basically the, the end of the Second World War. Uh, the Russians, as obviously under Joseph Stalin, advanced well into Central Europe. Uh, they almost split uh, Germany in two. They were occupying parts of uh, Austria, Hungary, uh, obviously Poland, Czechoslovakia. All the way along, and, and that was the famous speech that uh, Churchill gave after the Second World War in Fulton, Missouri, where he said, "The Iron Curtain is stretching across Central Europe," uh, and that indeed is what it was. But obviously, even though Stalin had, and Stalin, excuse me, Stalin had put in these puppet regimes in these satellite countries uh, to obviously give Russia a buffer zone of protection from any future invasion from the West, uh, people still, especially if they were close to the the West European border had the potential to escape and seek a new life in, in the Western democracies as they saw it. So once the Marshall Plan after 1947-48 was well underway with America pumping billions of dollars into the rebuilding and restructuring of Europe, uh, 
it became a game of chess and it was how can the, the East European bloc match uh, what the West had to offer. But equally, if that wasn't working, how could they stop their own populations uh, moving uh, and uh, vacating the countries that they were living in at the time? And the, the, the key focus there was obviously Germany. East Germany was now a sovereign state under uh, Walter Ulbricht. Uh, obviously, his masters were in Moscow. But the, the kind of economy and the kind of society he was trying to build, uh, a utopian socialist society in his eyes, but a very uh, communist-ridden, uh, arbitrary and, and, and quite vicious regime too, with uh, not, little, not much commercial consumer products available, uh, very long working hours for the population, uh, a, a fast-moving industrial complex that was trying to catch up with the West, where workers had to work very, very arduous long hours for little pay. So it was obvious that the, the, the population of Eastern Europe uh, and the population of East Germany in particular thought we don't want to have this kind of life, that we want something better. So they were, they were voting with their feet that, that East Germany was losing tens of thousands, then hundreds of thousands of its own citizens that were uh, migrating to the West, and they migrated through the, 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 the loophole that was Berlin. So after the Second World War, Berlin was split into four sectors, as Germany itself had been. There was a French, there was a British, there was an American, obviously there was a Soviet sector. The Soviet sector was run by the, the, the GDR, the Socialist State of East Germany, uh, but there was no real barriers. There was obviously checkpoints where people could come and go. But in a city of two and a half, 2.3 million people, as you see in any city in America or in Britain or in Europe now, people crisscross cities to go to work, to visit families, to do lots of things. And this was the case before a war was needed to keep people in, because what East German state was finding was people might be saying, I'm just going over to West Berlin to go and visit someone, or I might be going on a day trip, or it might be my job, but they weren't coming back. And before you know it, the, the, uh, the, the, the main section of East German society, the, the professional classes, uh, the age group of 25 to 40-year-olds that were the lifeblood of any economy, were leaving the country via this loophole in Berlin. They, were, they would go through the, the checkpoints quite easily, uh, whether by train, on foot, in car, uh, and they wouldn't come back. And they'd end up in a refugee uh, resettlement centre before they were shipped out to uh, West Germany and resettled. And so over two million citizens had left East Germany by the time uh, Walter Ulbricht and his henchmen, so to speak, uh, Eric Honecker, who would later become leader in the 1970s, uh, decided something has to be done. Uh, in the geopolitical picture, obviously, Khrushchev, Nikita Khrushchev was in charge of the Soviet Union. He was going head to head with your young, vibrant President John F. Kennedy in the early 1960s. And Berlin was the burning question. Uh, a lot of people get distracted with the Cuban Missile Crisis, but Berlin was always, always the main issue of uh, dispute between the Soviet Union and the Americans because of the drain of human resources going from East Germany into the West. 
one of the points you make in the book, which I must confess, I never really fully appreciated until you made it, which was how it how the uh, issue developed over time. How I, I, I was particularly struck by how you pointed out initially when you start to see the beginnings of this uh, exodus uh, in the early fifties, mm-hmm. how people like Stalin actually thought it was a good thing that they, here are all the dissenters and troublemakers that are going away. The analogy I had in my mind was how Castro sometimes. Uh, you know, use things like the Mariel Boatlift to get rid of all the people that he didn't want in his socialist paradise. Now, initially, they didn't have a problem with it, which would explain why you don't have a Berlin Wall in, say, 53 or 55. But by 1961, yep. it's, it's it's no longer just a matter of a few troublemakers. You're talking about, you know, really the, 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 the best and the brightest in German society. Well, that, that was the problem. It's fine for Stalin to think that at the time, but that, that was the, the early 50s. Uh, it wasn't the issue it would become by 1961. By Like I was saying, by 1961, it was hundreds of thousands of uh, workers, potential workers for the East German economy. And as a kind of inverse domino theory, I know the Americans uh, had the, uh, the domino theory of Southeast Asia, to, to the, the Soviet leadership, it might be a problem for the buffer states uh, that surrounded them that was facing out to the West. If the East German economy collapsed because of a lack of a workforce, that might have a, a, a knock-on effect to Poland, to Hungary, to Czechoslovakia. So Walter Ulbricht was constantly pressurizing the Soviet leadership to help him and do something. There, there'd been an East German uprising uh, through complaints against the regime in 1953, which had been brutally put down with with Russian tanks. But that couldn't really happen by the time of 1961 because the stakes had got bigger. Uh, JFK and Khrushchev had already had their summit in Vienna that summer of 61, where they'd seriously gone head to head. And people knew that a Cold War really, really was now freezing cold uh, with Berlin, the main issue. So the world's eyes were on the city. So it was a lot harder to just be, uh, to have a brutal crackdown to, to stop this kind of migration. They had to think something a little bit more sophisticated, even though we might think uh, building a wall is barbaric. It was a lot better than shooting people. I remember that was uh, Kennedy's phrase, uh, a wall is a hell of a lot better than a war. <laughs> yeah, well, that's one of the things I say in the book is the fact that it, I'm sure this will come out in years to come. I, I found some, uh, material in the archives that there's plenty of eyewitness accounts for you would think any half decent intelligence officer to realize something big was going on in around and in East Berlin before the the wall went up with the amount of uh, material and men and machinery that was suddenly being stockpiled around and inside the city to obviously build this thing plenty of agencies plenty of personnel Plenty of eyewitness accounts from East Germans that were coming through the the checkpoints to still migrate right up until the the night before the wall was built were all saying something's going on over there. But for whatever reason, no one put two and two together to think they are actually going to build a huge barrier. I was wondering if you could take us to that uh, night in August of 1961, which I I thought you, you captured very evocatively. The, the, the sense of how there was this tension it, with, with the added idea being that it wasn't just a matter of they didn't know what was going to happen. It was the, the, the concern that what was going to happen was going to be a, a military incursion, uh, some sort of, of, of takeover of West Berlin and, and maybe even World War III. What was you know, going on in, in 
you know, in the lives of some of the people that you talk about that were there that night? Yeah, well, I, 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 it was important to me to try and capture ordinary people's experiences throughout the book. So I didn't I wanted to avoid and it's what I say in the introduction. It's not a, a book about uh, geopolitics or a grand strategy with just the big names of history that are involved. Obviously, they're in my book because, you know, you have to name check them. But what I wanted to record were ordinary in the main ordinary people's experiences on both sides of the wall, I might add. Of, of what life was like. And obviously, as you just said, I wanted to capture what it was for the people who found themselves, for want of a better phrase, entombed in Berlin uh, over that weekend of the 13th of August, 1961. So very careful, excuse me, I have to excuse me, I've got a very bad voice, but uh, it was very carefully planned. Uh, the East German state knew what they were doing. They, they deliberately picked a weekend where they knew uh, in the middle of August that the, uh, the, the Berlin population would be seeking uh, to get away from the hot weather, to get out to the lakes, because Berlin's surrounded by some absolutely beautiful lakes and parks. So everyone would be distracted by just trying to have a relaxing time. It doesn't matter whether you're on the east or the west side of the city. So it would have been its quietest. There would have been less people around. Lots of people would have been away on business. Lots of people would have been away that were serving in the military personnel in the West, too. So it was a lot easier to move around the city. And that's why they chose it. So it took everyone by surprise. Like I said, I mean, maybe if you joined the dots, you could think something's going to happen. But on the, the front line, whether you're a an American military policeman stationed at Checkpoint Charlie, whether you're a, a newspaper man uh, or whether you're working for the American radio station, or whether you're just, uh, you could be even a milkman driving across the border. Everyone was taken by surprise. Everyone was fearful. Everyone was paranoid. What's this leading to? Because it's, you know, at the end of the day, Berlin and the hinterland of Berlin was surrounded by tens of thousands of Soviet troops. It was surrounded by well-armed units of East German militia and factory fighting workers. Uh, this was a frontline city. It was an exciting city to live in. And obviously, if you lived in West Berlin, it was a very colourful and dramatic place to be. A city of spies, as if you read any of the John le Carré or Len Dayton novels. But uh, yeah, I mean, it was still a, quite a scary place. And it's, it's the obvious thing to think. You think, why are all these troops suddenly moving around? Why have all these huge arc lights suddenly been turned on around the iconic sites like the Reichstag, uh, the Brandenburg Gate? Why are all these drills happening? Why have all this? Why has all this barbed wire suddenly been strung up? And more importantly, why have people's movements suddenly been abruptly stopped, forcibly and very aggressively? Not towards the Allies, I might add, but always towards these Germans. You, you mentioned that about how that's one of the things I really enjoyed about uh, those chapters where you're describing the erection of the wall, which is how you 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 uh, quote the you know some of the. Uh, you, you follow some of the uh, MPs, the the uh, British and American military police, you uh, and some of the civilians who are trying to to take stock of the situation. You know they're they're seeing all this military activity, and you, they have to be very careful. You know, is this happening within their border? Is this an incursion? How do you handle something like this? And as you explain, you know, even if it had been an incursion, uh, the military police, the uh, the, the military detachments that were stationed in West Berlin by the British and the Americans and the French were in no real condition to do more than 
uh, delay any sort of attack. So I mean, it was you, you, you capture how just how frightening this was for all of them to to suddenly experience this burst of activity after this period of growing tension. Yes, I mean, well, they were they they were very well armed, well supported uh, military units for the Allies in in West Berlin, but there were never more than ten thousand or so troops. Uh, and that would, having talked to the experts, so obviously, as you said, I mean, I interviewed plenty of people from commandants of the actual Allied sectors all the way down to private first class. And they all said the same thing. They would have put up a hell of a fight, but you'd literally only be talking about three, maybe five to six days, if you were lucky, street fighting before it was all over. Because just as you've seen in many World War II engagements, say, for instance, uh, Operation Market Garden, uh, Lightly armed troops who might have anti-tank weapons and heavy machine guns are no match for tanks and motorized vehicles and fighter jets flying over you, probably laying carpets of bombs. They wouldn't have lasted that long. Uh, and as, as, as I say in, uh, later on in the book, when I'm, I'm interviewing uh, Major General Robert Corbett, who was the British commandant in 1989, he was quite... Uh, honest with me and said we would have been goners. I mean, they were his words. He said, but we would have put up a bloody good show. And that <laughs> that kind of feeling uh, resonates all the way through right to the beginning of the war. So there were the same number of troops, but the Allies had a handful of tanks, they had a handful of armoured vehicles, and then it was mainly military police, French, British and American, that, that were manning all the sectors. So as long as... Uh, I would say as long as they could see that the what the massed ranks of East German militias and troops and police were doing was inside the sovereign territory of East Germany itself and East Berlin itself. And they realized that they weren't encroaching on their own sectors. So therefore, no danger was going to come to them. That's why there was no response from the Allies in the first few days of uh, after the 13th of August, because they knew well, nothing's coming into our sector. They're literally doing this to their own people. So it would have been, I, I would imagine, and as I describe it, it, would, it was very frightening. It was probably more frightening for the civilians because they wouldn't have had any idea what was going on. Whereas for the military, I think within about 48 to 72 hours, they had a very, very good idea that the Western sector was intact. The Western sector was safe. It was primarily to seal off uh, the Soviet sector. That was what Operation Rose, which is what it was called, was all about. Let's talk a bit about the civilian response, because you describe uh, you, you've you've interviewed uh, some civilians in, in Berlin who uh, who were in Berlin at the time, and, and you relate some of their stories about how they're reacting to this this sudden change of situation to where there is at the very least the possibility of a fairly easy escape from uh, the East to suddenly these barriers are going up and all of a sudden there's the, it changes the situation. How do they respond, it, not just you know, in East Berlin among the uh, Eastern Germans, but also in West Berlin among the Germans there? Well, I mean, the, it's, it's like I was saying, it's, it's one of shock, terror and fear as to not just what's going to happen in the, the near future, I suppose, but if you have loved ones, which is what I describe in the book, trapped on the eastern side, just through being in the wrong place at the wrong time, 
that was what I wanted to try and capture. So one of the main interviewees I talked to, who actually lives in, in West London now, and that's where I interviewed her, uh, is uh, Margit Hosseini. And she's now 83. But some of the, the things she saw from, say, the late 50s all the way through to the mid 60s were incredible. And she really witnessed iconic moments in Cold War history. Uh, so she'd moved back to West Berlin with her father, who was a diplomat uh, after the Second World War and after uh, it died, the, the, the tension had died down after the uprising of 1953, which I had just said the Russians had brutally suppressed. So she was uh, a young schoolgirl. She was probably about 14, 15 uh, towards the end of the 50s and she was seeing what the city was like so I was trying to capture through her eyes of what it was like for someone who was used to the luxuries that uh, being in the professional class of a West Berlin household compared to going to visit your relatives in East Berlin was like so she was talking about walking through rubble torn streets with bullet holes still on the on the uh, the walls uh, shrapnel scars everywhere and houses in complete disrepair because obviously the Russians were focusing more on stripping the, the East German, German economy to ship it back to Russia for reparations rather than rebuilding their sector of the city, which is obviously what the Allies were busy doing. They were rebuilding the city. So I tried to capture that through her eyes. And then as time goes on and the day of the wall being built, her interview was was essential because she definitely captured the, the confusion and terror through a teenager's eyes because through happen chance her sister her younger sister who she adored had been staying with her grandmother who lived in the northeastern side of berlin and was a, a committed communist excuse me a committed socialist and wanted to stay and help rebuild that society so but because i was saying before it was easy to go through the checkpoints Marguerite's uh, family constantly travelled through to East Berlin to deliver gifts and see loved ones and catch up with their news and that kind of thing and, and have long debates into the night, she used to say, about politics and, and why that side of the family wanted to stay in East Berlin. So her, her sister's trapped for all her, for all she knows and her concerned mother and father know, along with hundreds of other, or thousands even, of other West Berliners, they're thinking, what's happened to our loved ones on the other side of the border? And they're refusing us entry to come through. And so they spent nearly a day uh, running around the city, trying to find out where she was, was she safe, how would they get her back, until they eventually did a few days later. But that was just one civilian on the western side's uh, experience, on the eastern side, what I tried to want, what I wanted to capture was two or three uh, East German uh, teenagers who were belonging to families that were committed to the socialist dream, who wanted to stay there and build the state. So, uh, Stefan Voller, who I talked about, uh, his father was a, 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 an expert economist who was part of the, the East German Politburo, who were governing. Uh, where the East German economy was going to go in the 1960s. And he was on a, a, a boys' camp uh, with the youth movement of uh, the SED, the, the, the socialist uh, movement that governed the, the GDR. And I tried to capture his viewpoint. And as far as he was concerned, he swallowed the government line as, as 
pretty much everyone else did on the other side, hook, line and sinker. It it was an anti-fascist barrier that was going to protect uh, the East German uh, from growing successfully, from not being interfered with by the malign uh, interference of Western intelligence agencies, uh, Western influence of decadence that capitalism brought. And again, so I, I try to get a yin and a yang of uh, what the war meant to both sides of the equation. And, and, and I try to do that throughout the book. So I just try to capture that at the beginning. It's interesting to see how the uh, Berliners come to accept the wall. You describe early on how as it's as it's going up, some Berliners, uh, you know, some in the East do their <clears> best <throat> to take advantage of uh, of, of last moment escapes, you describe how the Berlin Fire Brigade is 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 being called out to, uh, you know, protect jumpers until uh, to catch jumpers until the uh, border guards break up the walls. But you also describe how, as time goes along, the wall becomes a, a, a fact of life, and 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 how it becomes a part of the existence of Berlin. I was wondering if you could perhaps uh, describe some of that, both in terms of the civilians in uh, in Berlin, but also as well the military, how it becomes a, uh, it becomes, you know, even more so in some ways, uh, a front line in the Cold War. Yeah, well, with the, the, the civilians, uh, obviously, I mean, it, it, it was shocking and it, it took a good two to three years for the, uh, I think, for the, the civilians in West Berlin to accept it as the norm, to accept that it wasn't going to go away. And obviously they were watching uh, brick by brick, almost. It's a cliche, but it's true. But watching uh, their half of the city being separated from East Berlin by a more complex barrier. Because obviously when the, the barrier went up for the first time, uh, on August 13th, and then for the next few days and the next few weeks, it was pretty much a barbed wire uh, uh, construction because that's what they had. And then that was almost a a toe in the water. You could could say they were testing to see if there would be an Allied reaction. And within a couple of days when they knew that wasn't coming and the Allies weren't going to to knock it down, uh, that's when the second phase came in and they, they arbitrarily and quickly started building... You know, very, uh, very hastily built walls. And if you look at a lot of the pictures of uh, the heartache that you see of separation of families who are standing on on tables and chairs, uh, looking over the wall that's just hastily been built, they're mainly breeze blocks. And that's that's one of the reasons a lot of people don't know that why construction of East Berlin housing for the local population was put back for quite a long time, several years, you could argue, because a lot of the materials that have been stockpiled and ordered to build new flats and new shops and new buildings was actually uh, purloined by Operation Rose to actually build the wall. So that happened. And it gradually, the, 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 the all-consuming suffocation of East Berlin was gradual over months. And that's, again, you, you mentioned it. That's why you see as each sector right by the border was sealed off, human beings being what they are, they, they find ingenious ways of, well, if I can't get out this way, maybe we can get out that way. And that's why I interview and talk about uh, various ingenious escapes people had, whether through the sewers, through going through uh, derelict and abandoned buildings right by the border, 
that the police had checked, but just assumed no one else would get through, uh, how tunnels were built uh, and constructed to get people out. And it was almost a, a cat and mouse game that the authorities were playing with their own population to prevent them escaping. And so you mentioned it. That's why you have that famous scene of uh, Frieda Schultz, 77-year-old pensioner, who is the one dangling from a first-story apartment block because her window overlooked the French sector. Uh, and as she's wondering whether she can jump down to the waiting crowd, the East German police burst into her house to try and prevent her getting out. So you have the ludicrous scene, which makes a great iconic picture of she's dangling by the arms of an East German policeman who's trying to pull her back through the window, whereas 15 feet below her, uh, the waiting crowd and the firemen with the tarpaulin spread out are waiting for her to jump down. And in the end, two people had to climb up a window frame to grab onto her ankles so their weight would pull her down and she escaped. And that captured the ludicrousness of the situation where obviously it was a grand plan, Operation Rose, and they knew what they were going to do step by step. But you can never plan for what human beings or how Europe, uh, human beings will react to being enclosed. And, and the, the hardcore ones who want to escape will try and do anything to escape. And I tried to capture that in the book. As far as the military are concerned, I think that, uh, they, yeah, I mean, all, all the people I talked to, especially the American troops and the military policemen I talked to, uh, were of the same opinion. They were, they were very shocked. They were very angry. Uh, they were resentful at first of why their superiors weren't trying to react and break down the barriers. Uh, I mentioned uh, one of the key interviews is Lieutenant Werner Pike, uh, who was a military police lieutenant at, at uh, Checkpoint Charlie. He watched as uh, the barriers went up. And, and he said to me with a, a wry smile that, you know, as we were watching these East German militias building their... Uh, their barriers two or three days after the main one went up, they would be shouting across to the American, the Americans saying, you do know we have no bullets in our guns. Now's your chance. If you want to do something, do something. But that was obviously being passed back up the chain, but nothing was done because obviously, as you said earlier, referred to earlier, there was a grander plan and, and JFK and uh, his administration were thinking, well, a wall is better than a, uh, having a war. Uh, so as long as it didn't affect the Allies, they were prepared to maybe, it's a strong thing to say, but sacrifice the East Berliners and have them surrounded and their freedoms curtailed. So there was a balance and, and, and the British and the French were the same. They, they, were, they were trying their best to facilitate and help any escapees if they, if they could try and get through the barbed wire and then over the, the, the first version of the war. Uh, but obviously, as soon as the, uh, the civilians and the Allies saw what the East German border guards and the authorities were prepared to do, i.e. shoot to kill, and they were doing that within the first week of uh, the war going up, then it became a whole different ballgame. And, and uh, they knew that uh, this, was, uh, this was more deadly serious. And, and then obviously, as time went by, uh, within... Within a year, you're talking about, and what I what I describe in the book is, it becomes a bigger game of can the the East Germans and the Russians squeeze more uh, concessions out of the Allies, and perhaps 
pressurise and force them to give up more rights that they've got in West Berlin that have been agreed. So rights of travel, uh, freedom of travel into uh, East Berlin, uh, which wasn't stopped when the Berlin Wall went up. But by October of the following year, that's exactly what they were scheming to do in the fact that they uh, they started to demand seeing identification of either foreign diplomats uh, crossing from west to east uh, when that went straight against what the uh, the four power agreement had been that if you're if you're driving uh, vehicles with foreign uh, diplomatic plates you weren't stopped you were obviously waved through your vehicle wasn't checked you had immunity whereas what happened uh, in October 1962 was the the the, the famous tank standoff uh, where uh, an American diplomat was taking his wife to uh, the theater to to the opera in East Berlin because East Berlin was still famous for having some of the best opera in the world that was was out, was dirt cheap to go and watch and to go and have a lovely meal that was very cheap too because of the uh, the difference in uh, the the East German and the West German and the American currency and because he was stopped at the uh, checkpoint Charlie to have his uh, ID checked. Uh, one thing led to another, and before you know it, you have half a dozen Soviet tanks facing off 100 yards away, half a dozen uh, uh, American M40 tanks locked and loaded, and within a hair's breadth of, of starting World War III. And obviously, uh, that's where the, the the big players become involved, and it went in, in, in the Soviet Union, it went right, right up to Nikita Khrushchev, and in the White House, it went right up to JFK to try and resolve the issue and to have it back down. And, and that's how it could be argued, and that's why I put it on the front cover of the subtitle of the book. It became the most dangerous place on earth because it, it was an open sore in the Cold War. By the 1960s, you obviously had uh, the Korean War had finished, and there was the demarcation line of North and South Korea and, and the demilitarized zone, but they weren't at war anymore. Uh, the Vietnam War had yet to really kick off. So right then and there, uh, before the Cuban Missile Crisis, you had Berlin, and Berlin was one place where armed troops were facing each other and potentially could do battle over the most spurious of things, like asking a diplomat to show him some ID. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. You recount as well a lot of the uh, stories of escape that take place over the next uh, 25 years. I was wondering, is there one in particular that's a favorite of yours or one that really stood out for you as you were uh, hearing about it or as you were uh, recounting it in your book? I think, that, yeah, I mean, I, 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 uh, I, I wanted to t- talk about it because I, I just thought it, it summed up the futility of the Berlin Wall. And it also it summed up for me the tragedy of what the Cold War had done to the, the East German population. And that's uh, chapter 17 in the book. It's called The Last Escape. And 
it's basically the last uh, East Germans to escape through Checkpoint Charlie. There were, there were a couple of more escapes through the, the actual uh, inter-German border outside of Berlin, but through the actual iconic section of, of that part of the Berlin Wall was uh, Hans-Peter Spitzner uh, and his daughter, uh, Peggy. And it was just such a, a, a lovely story. So that, And it, it, it summed up how the, the bankruptcy by the, uh, the late 80s of the, the East German state and what it couldn't offer its population. And because it couldn't offer the, uh, just the basics we take for granted in the West of uh, consumer goods, uh, uh, a lack of interference in your everyday life, uh, a choice of what career you wanted to have, more importantly, a choice of what political persuasion you want to be. And ultimately, which was the, the, it's the, the, the trigger of the wall coming down, free travel, free freedom to, to decide where you want to go. And because the bankruptcy of all of that happened, by the time of uh, Peter Spitzner in, in 1989, he was typical of many East Germans, hundreds of thousands of East Germans. He'd had enough of the states. He knew that, that it was no life for him, and particularly now he had ch- uh, a child. It was no life for her, and he wanted to get out. He'd already been picked up by the Stasi and, and interrogated heavily and quite scarily just because of expressing a different political opinion at a, uh, a workers' uh, community uh, election process. He just had said, I, I don't really want to vote for any of these candidates because they've just been put up in front of me. I have no choice who I want. And because he'd expressed that, he, he had a black mark against his name. He was picked up very quickly and, and went, underwent 24 hours extensive uh, interrogation. And so he wanted to get out. And he was lucky that because his wife was visiting relatives in Austria uh, and she'd been let out of the country because the authorities knew she, they had hostages, i.e. they had Peter and his daughter still in East Germany, uh, she would come back. And so he took the choice of, well, this is the time that we need to go. And, and he took a very, very desperate and very simplistic uh, uh, attack of how he would get through. Uh, and it was to take his daughter, who was nine at the time, down to uh, Berlin, where he'd been on various trips as a student. So he didn't really know his way around Berlin. Uh, and with the the money he had on him, the, the money he took with him, uh, he managed to uh, have food and drink for the next two to, uh, I think it was two to three weeks, befriended a pastor uh, who hid and sheltered them while they were trying their best to uh, stay hidden in East Berlin. And they simply went down to Checkpoint Charlie uh, to try and uh, persuade either a diplomat or a tourist or, or uh, allied military personnel who were traveling through in their vehicles who wouldn't be checked, obviously, to hide them and get them through the, the, the Byzantine uh, checks that the East Germans had in place by then. And as, as a side note, that, that's the thing I, I talk about in the book. To, on the Allied side, Checkpoint Charlie was always ever just a simplistic hut. It got slightly bigger as time went on, but it was always ever just a very simplistic hut 
a mobile hut that represented to the Allies what they thought of the separation of Berlin, as in they didn't particularly recognize it. They were showing to the East Germans that the hut itself could be taken away in a moment's notice, click of the fingers, because then the city would be whole again. And they were ready for that moment. Whereas on the East German side, it was a huge complex, much like the, you know, something that maybe uh, your president Donald Trump would like on the, you know, the border to Mexico. It's, it's, it was really purpose built with the latest technology, cost millions of dollars to build, to really find and stop anyone trying to get through. And by the late 80s, Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of, of tourists and diplomats and allied personnel were daily traveling through this checkpoint, bringing much needed currency to the East German state. So here's Peter with his daughter. He's down there and he's seeing countless uh, coach trips coming through. He's seeing countless diplomatic cars coming through. And obviously he's seeing dozens and dozens and dozens of military vehicles coming through, begging them to, uh, you know, he'd be, he'd be approaching them down side streets away from Checkpoint Charlie saying, you know, will you take me and my daughter? We're desperate to leave. Uh, and no one would. And then just literally, I think he'd given himself another 24 hours before he was going to give up and get back home. Uh, he managed to come across uh, an American uh, army uh, private, uh, Eric Yore, and who basically just took pity on them and in a, a you know, in a moment, you, you might say a moment of madness because it was a very dangerous thing to do. But in a very humanitarian gesture, said, yeah, I'll do it. And he put Peggy and Peter in the boot of his car and slowly made his way to Checkpoint Charlie and then made his way through the checkpoints. And then uh, obviously uh, drove straight through to uh, an allied control to where he opened the boot up and in a very emotional moment, which I try my best to capture, said, uh, takes uh, Peter and Peggy, who are blinking in the sunlight, who've been trapped in this boot for hours, out and into the compound and says, welcome to freedom. And what I try to also capture was uh, not just the shock of, uh, of how do they get used to a new life in the West, but equally a month or so later, the shock of them having been rehoused and relocated in West Germany, seeing the Berlin Wall fall down. And I remember, and you might remember, when I was a student at university, I was watching the TV, my mouth was to the floor, because to my generation, the, 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 the Berlin Wall was like the Himalayas. It was so permanent. It was such a fixture in our lives. You just never assumed it would ever come down, ever. And for someone living in East Germany who'd grown up with it and been so indoctrinated by the system and so cowed by the system, and then to have the, the bravery to escape it, and then to watch it come down and see his countrymen flood through, it must have been such an emotional moment. And I tried to capture that in the book too. And it's an amazing story. And, and I, there's, there's lots of escapes I talk about, I, I, and, and you, you mentioned it. I talk about people driving through. I talk about people climbing over the wall. I talk about people tunneling, which is an exceptional story as well. But just from a human story, uh, and it's right at the end as well, so it captures it perfectly of how this was a man who was, risk, was going to risk everything, including his life, to, to escape, not knowing that, you know, in a very, very short space of time, 
he was watching hundreds of thousands of his countrymen do exactly the same thing, but with no fear of repression, no fear of of being killed because the wall had now fallen. And I'm, and I just thought it was it was a perfect ending to that chapter in the book. I'd like for you. I like that point that you're making, which is just it, it, we talk about how iconic the fall of the Berlin Wall is, and it's something that sometimes we can overlook in retrospect, which was how uh, unexpected it was. It was it was in, in its own way as, as unexpected as the construction of the wall on on August 13th. I was wondering if you could perhaps uh, f- finish uh, this off by talking a bit about that experience for a lot of the people involved. Uh, you, you mentioned how the 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 commander of the of British forces in Berlin was was there, and how you had you, you interview all these other individuals who were there. Who you know, even though you were seeing uh, Gorbachev uh, introducing uh, Glasnost, and you were seeing you know the, the the this growing anticipation that that the Cold War was winding down. How it the you know, the idea, as you just mentioned, of of this you know seemingly uh, you know in, uh, this seemingly permanent barrier. You're basically, yeah. just basically, you're going away in a matter of hours, practically. Yeah, I mean that that was the thing. I mean, one of the things uh, uh, Major General Corbett said to me was, and it's in the book where once he'd accepted to do the job, he was interviewed by the uh, the British Foreign Secretary at the time, uh, who said to him, uh, and he'd asked, he'd he'd obviously asked the question, well, is there is there any time, is there any is there any chance while I'm there? that the wall will come down because obviously he was just about to accept the position. Uh, and you know, within, in a very short space of time, the, the wall would come down in his first year in the job. But obviously from 85 onwards, as you just said, Gorbachev, Mikhail Gorbachev was bringing in, uh, his liberalization of the Soviet union, but also without the West fully knowing, he was obviously dismantling the very close economic and military ties that the Soviet Union or Russia itself had to the satellite states that Stalin and then Khrushchev had set up and supported all through the Cold War. And by dismantling, what I mean is the tap was being switched off with how much economic military aid that these countries were going to get. Obviously, the Allies and civilian populations like ourselves living in America, Britain, France, Germany, West Germany, sorry, etc. We didn't know this at the time. All we saw was these high powered speeches and conferences that Ronald Reagan was having with Gorbachev about arms control. Arms control was a different on a different plane to everything else that were going on, that everyone was focusing on would the, all these short-range uh, intercontinental uh, missiles be removed from Europe? Because what Europe, and I remember this because I was I was studying in high school and I was studying for my degree at the time, we were petrified. We, we'd been brought up all the time through uh, TV and in our school books, in our, in our lessons at school, sorry, that, you know, annihilation, nuclear annihilation was minutes away. And so to have all these missiles based around uh, Europe and Britain especially was a huge thing. So everyone was focusing on that. No one was really focusing on, well, what's going on with the relationship between the Eastern states? How will that go? And obviously all we saw at face value was a very, very strong, very uh, dynamic and very what seemed like 
successful East German state, uh, successful Czechoslovakian state. They, they were very firmly in control. Obviously, from about 86, 87 onwards, there were really big situations going on in Poland with the rise of solidarity. Uh, and that's where you could argue the fall of the Eastern Bloc really began. That, that's where the first chink in the armour happened. But it, it was primarily through Gorbachev. So back to Robert Corbett. He's asking Sir Geoffrey Howe, the Foreign Secretary, is there any chance while I'm there that the ball, Berlin Wall will come down? And Howe famously said to him, the, the Berlin Wall won't come down in our lifetime. And that's someone who's the Foreign Secretary, who sees daily briefings from all the intelligence agencies that are situated in, in Berlin and along the border. He has first-hand accounts, and he's using his specialist knowledge to say that. So that goes to show that everyone was taken by surprise. But what I liked about Robert was, as he says in the book, he was, he was a real people person, and, and he, you know, he spoke fluent German, and he'd been in Germany at the start of proceedings when the Berlin Wall went up. So the prologue of my book talks about him as a, a young lieutenant who's guarding a vital uh, supply train going from West Germany into, East, into West Berlin after the wall had been built and all the problems he had getting that in. And here we have the stories turned full circle and now he's in charge of the British sector in 1989. And he said he wanted to make a point of getting to know the East Berlin people to see what life really was like, because obviously he's getting all these reports from his intelligence services that are that, that are out there that are allowed to go into East Germany and East Berlin. But he wanted to see it for himself. And he was seeing it firsthand. He actually had an inkling. The pressure cookers really bubbling here. These people want change. They're they're desperate for change. Uh, they want us to help. And I would think probably it was the Gorbachev visit in late 89 that really sealed the fate. So obviously, they'd had a whole summer in 89 of uh, the issue which I raised before about Peter Spitzner of free travel to East Germans. That was a fundamental issue uh, for a whole new generation uh, of East Germans that were in, now in their, their 20s and 30s and hadn't grown up with the fierce repression of the early 50s when the pre, you know, their, their mothers and fathers and grandmothers and grandfathers had, had had to face Russian tanks and soldiers who were going to kill them if they rebelled. Now it had become more sophisticated because the, 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 world, the world was watching uh, East Germany uh, needed vital loans from West Germany and America and everywhere else, Western banks, to keep afloat. I mean, that, that, was, a, that, was, that was a known thing that was happening, irrespective of what Russia was, was propping them up with. So they had to play ball and they, they, they knew that if they were going to be a sovereign state that could go to the Olympic Games and could go to the World Cup and could sit at the UN, uh, they had to abide by the rules. So the, the days of fierce repression, like you would see, obviously, in Tiananmen Square that year, where hundreds if not thousands were killed they couldn't do that so if their people were going to the borders with Hungary and Austria and Czechoslovakia and wanting uh, to try and break through the barriers there wasn't much they could do without there being serious serious repercussions and obviously by then Hungary was was going to lax was going to be lax in patrolling its borders uh, 
and there was your route. The East Germans could get into to Hungary and then move straight into Austria and then find freedom. So it was very much a situation on the borders outside of Berlin that it that had played exactly like Berlin itself in 1961, where you've got masses of people who potentially could move across the border unmolested without the East German state doing anything. And because that was happening and Gorbachev could see it was happening and he made the famous speech to the, the East German Politburo in front of a shocked Honecker, if you don't move with events, you're going to be sunk in, in you know, that, that's me just making his words up, but that's basically what he was saying. And Honecker just not, but not accepting reality and saying, well, it's our 40th anniversary of the state being here and another 40 years is definitely going to happen. The Berlin Wall's here to stay. And obviously he wasn't aware that the younger guard of the East German Politburo were listening to Gorbachev and removed him quite quickly before the wall came down. So all this was going on. So in one way, hindsight's a great thing. And again, I, as I said before, if you joined the dots, you might think, they were going to do something terrible and build a massive barrier in 61. If you look at all the things that were going on in and take all these separate uh, events uh, and join them together, you think, of course, the, the East German state was going to fall. Uh, it was obvious because the Russians had pulled, were going to pull the plug. And the vital thing was, as soon as... Uh, soon as there were mass demonstrations in Berlin and Dresden and Leipzig, where hundreds of thousands of protesters could advocate democracy and have it and holding democratic elections, and the East German security state apparatus stood back and allowed them to do it, the writing was on the wall. And Gorbachev had to make the decision, if push comes to shove and the Berlin Wall does fall and the East German state falls, what do we do? What do I do with the 300,000 or more Soviet soldiers I have stationed in East Germany, throughout East Germany? What do I do with the 3,000 tanks that are stationed throughout East Germany? Do I say to them, get out there and support the East German, the hardliners in the East German state? Or do I say, stay in your barracks, do nothing. This isn't our fight. Events will play out the way they're supposed to. I have bigger considerations to hold the Russian state together, to hold the Soviet Union together. That's my focus. Whatever happens in East Germany will happen in East Germany. It's a price worth paying for me saving my own country. And that's exactly what happened. And I think hindsight shows us that. But at the time, in real time, which is what I wanted to try and portray in the book, what I was trying to capture was, just like the wall going up, the instead of the terror and anger and frustration and uh, heartbreak of watching a wall being built, what I wanted to capture in a, to bookend the, the narrative was to capture the excitement, the shock, the exhilaration, the, the joy and the tears of happiness as the wall came down, as the gates were opened, the checkpoints were opened through people power and where a bullet wasn't fired, where no one was hurt, no one was killed as this happened and the world could watch. And, and it, it's, it's and one thing I would say, just to sorry, carry on about this, was it was amazing for me to be in a cafe or someone's apartment in Berlin uh, and be interviewing across the table 
many East Berliners and, and, and West Germans who now live in Berlin, but had family in East Berlin and East Germany. And I would be having great conversations with them. And they're just ordinary people like you and I, and they're just talking away and they'd laugh and they'd, uh, and they'd show indignation and anger when they were uh, remembering or telling me anecdotes of, of whatever their specific experiences were through the life of the Berlin Wall. But on every occasion, when I spoke to them about that particular night and the subsequent few days after the checkpoints opening and the wall falling, all of them burst into tears, all of them. And I'd have to stop the tape and let them you know, compose themselves. And some of them, you'd even give them a hug. And uh, it was just amazing. And, and that gets back to my point about oral history and trying to capture that essence and that, that spark that makes that kind of narrative shine above everything else. It's just not dry history. It's capturing the moment and really, really getting to the core of the story by the people that actually experienced it. And I like as well how you capture moments that we have sometimes uh, glossed over with hindsight, as you point out in the book, that while for many people there's it's this triumphal moment of exaltation, of, of, of joyous release, you also illustrate how for uh, some of like the border guards and the, and, and the Soviet soldiers, there was a very real prospect that it could have turned out very differently and how we tended to lose that, but for their recollections of, of, of their yeah. experiences of, of that moment. Well, I think you're alluding to that with Robert Corbett. I mean, that, that's just an amazing story that not many people know about. And it certainly hasn't been written about. And I think that's one of the, the key things in the book, actually, is that he he stopped and he did. I mean, he, he's very humble, but he did. And other people that I've spoken to afterwards have worked with him say the same thing. I mean, he stopped a, a mini Tiananmen Square happening at the Brandenburg Gate because your, your listeners might not know this, but... Uh, through just a weird geographic logistic accident uh, where the borders uh, buffered up against each other for the, the, the British and the Soviet sector in Berlin, where you've got the Brandenburg Gate, past the Brandenburg Gate in the Tiergarten, you have the Soviet War Memorial. And that's a huge edifice that's, that's built. They, they built it out of uh, the rubble from the Reichstag, I might add. And it's an amazing, it's, it's a very typical communist uh monument it's huge and it's vulgar but it 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 takes the breath away in its size and it represents the 80,000 uh russian soldiers that died capturing berlin in 1945 so to the russians it's sacrosanct it's holy ground and because that site was inside the british sector an agreement was reached after the war was put up that the soviets would always be allowed to have uh, an honor guard guarding the memorial and they had their own compound and uh, a mini barracks and they were always allowed to travel through the British checkpoint there to to relieve uh, the guard obviously every day and then when you have uh, you know a Russian memorial day they were allowed to, allowed to do a big parade there and everything else so on the night of the wall coming down if you put yourselves in the in the shoes of a of a the 40 or so Russian soldiers that were on guard at the memorial. And as we just said, everyone thinks the Berlin Wall is immovable. It's like the Himalayas, it's never coming down. And if you're just a conscript, uh, a Russian conscript, and you're seeing people coming through the wall, 
people getting on the wall, West Germans surrounding your your uh, your memorial, shouting at you, abusing you, probably wanting to get into the place. Uh, and you have no idea what what's going to happen. Am I going to be strung up by the lamppost? Is that is that what's going to happen? Is it going to be like I saw on Tiananmen Square where they're going to attack the soldiers because they think we're the enemy? And that's that that's the situation Robert Corbett, as he was uh, radioed to get over there to go and sort this out, faced when he arrived. You've got very scared, very panicked soldiers with their rifles locked and loaded and ready to uh, resist. Uh, and he managed to talk these guys down. He got he sat he sat in the middle of them, got them to stand all around him, and through an interpreter said, "I can't guarantee what happens in other sectors this evening, with these momentous events that are going on, and I'm just as surprised as you are. This is all happening, but we've got to deal with it. All I can guarantee, as the commander of the British section, no harm's going to come to you." And he said, as soon as this was uh, uh, translated in Russian to these soldiers, especially to their officers, their commanding officers, he could see their shoulders visibly relax. And they they all thanked him, hugged him, gave him a guard of honour as he left. And then the, the amazing thing that happened afterwards was Robert's then driving to the next situation he has to resolve and find out what's going on. And uh, he gets a call from... Uh, uh, the head of military intelligence in Berlin said, can you come over quickly to the barracks? And he does. And he says something incredible has happened because obviously this is a day, this is well before we've got the internet and the kind of mobile phones we've got where we could easily swap information. He's just got a mobile, a huge mobile phone in his, his, his Jeep. So he goes to the barracks and uh, they say, we've got this communicator that's come through a channel that was a communication channel. The British had with the, the, the KGB and, and the head of the Soviet military, but Stalin closed it after the Berlin airlift and it was never opened again. That night they reopened it and the head of the of Soviet forces in Eastern Europe uh, name checked Robert and thanked him personally and said, we will never forget what you've done for us uh, tonight. And as I say in the epilogue, since that day happened every year on Russian Soviet Memorial Day, he gets these amazing presents in the post, whether it's uh, very expensive vodka, very expensive caviar, very expensive Soviet memorabilia, and they haven't forgotten. And so that's just one story. And then there's other stories of civilians just being in the right place at the right time and being near a checkpoint, and all of a sudden they're watching TV, and they're like me uh, in, at my university back in Britain. They're just seeing people coming through the checkpoints, their mouths drop open, they get their clothes on because obviously it's freezing cold that night. They rush out and 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 start to party. And a, lo- a lovely anecdote for your listeners in the US is uh, the American policeman, uh, Michael Sergeant Michael Rafferty, who goes to bed uh, having finished a shift uh, with his family, uh, thinking, right, I'm back on shift at, at six o'clock in the morning. Goes to bed thinking, you know, the Berlin Wall's the Berlin Wall. You know, he's just done his job and it's still there and it's impregnable. Wakes up and and he's driving along back down to the bay. Uh, back, sorry, he's driving back down in his jeep, being overtaken by his his friends with the alarms going off. And he's thinking, oh my God, what's happening? He's briefed by one of his friends who jumps in the jeep with him, and then he's on the most surreal uh, tour of duty for the next twelve hours where he's just seeing this historic scene of hundreds of East German Trabant diesel cars 
driving through his little checkpoint, thousands of East Germans hugging and kissing him, giving him drinks, uh, asking him directions of where to go, and him choking on the diesel fumes. It, it was just fantastic. And so I tried to, well, again, what I'm trying to do in the book is, is capture the big moments from the big people who played big parts, such uh, ex-Secretary of State James A. Baker's in there as well, talking about what it was like in the White House. But more importantly, I'm trying to capture what the ordinary person was feeling, whether they're military uh, policemen uh, on the borders uh, or whether they're just civilians who, like I said, were caught in the right place at the right time and, and just see an absolutely iconic moment of history happen before their eyes. Mm. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Uh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm just doing preliminary investigations. I'm, I'm, it, it is a kind of part of the Cold War, but it happened during the Cold War, but it's, it's, it's more of a, a French thing. I've always been fascinated by the, the various assassination attempts on uh, President de Gaulle. So at the moment, I'm just talking to some key figures that were involved in either uh, political groups that were against what he did in Fren the, uh, the French uh, moving out of uh, Algeria and, uh, and the, the resistance that happened through people, especially in the armed forces that were there, uh, really hating him for it and obviously doing their best to try and kill him uh, in revenge. So it's, it's it's just fascinating. And obviously there's there's been a few films in the past, The Day of the Jackal, for instance. And uh, I, I just find that that part of history I find fascinating. And I've found quite a few people who uh, have never had their story told before. So I'm hoping to tell a more kind of uh, espionage thriller type narrative uh, about that, that, that part of, uh, of, uh, important European and world history. Well, it sounds like it's going to be uh, quite a great book if, uh, the, if the research pans out and if it gets published. I hope we can have you back on the New Books Network. Yeah, that would be great. It's like, it's like this book. It's all in the telling, isn't it? It's, it's, <laughs> if, you right, if you can find the right people, you can tell a brilliant narrative. I'm only as good as the people I interview. Simple as that. Well, I think you're, you're being a little too modest because you, you, you definitely uh, do a great job telling their stories. Well, it's nice of you to say so. Thank you. Well, uh, Ian McGregor, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you. <laughs>